This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Anthony Curry, Associate Editor at Reuters Breaking Views. The horrendous effects of climate change confront us ever more frequently. California has this year suffered its most deadly, destructive and expansive wildfires ever. Cape Town and cities in India and other parts of Asia have been dealing with extreme water shortages. Indonesia's capital, Jakarta, is sinking. The list goes on. And as a recent report from 13 branches of the US federal government makes clear, it'll get worse unless we take action. That, of course, requires money, which is where our guest this week comes in. Erica Karp is a former Wall Street executive, having been head of global sector research at UBS. Five years ago, she struck out on her own, founding Cornerstone Capital, whose goal is, and forgive me while I read the boilerplate here, to optimise investment performance together with social impact through rigorous research that systematically integrates environmental, social and governance factors into portfolio design. Or in short, let's just make sure we understand all the risks we should be investing in. Um, So who better to tell us about the role investing has to play in battling climate risk? Erica, thank you so much for coming on the show. I am absolutely delighted to be here with you, and it's been a um, it's been a long time that we've known each other. And yep. my job has always been to push the boundaries of uh, research and questions. And in this case, we're not just talking about risk, but we're talking about opportunity. And if we look at it that way, we can tr- try to understand why um, climate change is not just a massive existential risk; it also provides enormous economic opportunity. Well, if we start there, if we look at this this report that came out um, uh, right after Thanksgiving, it's got many people thinking that maybe the Trump administration, which is not so keen on thinking about climate change as a problem, might have buried it or at least you know, tried to downplay it. Um, in that report, it talks a lot about the impacts over the next 70 years, 80 years, and that up to 10% of GDP could be hit uh, in the United States if no action is taken either here or globally to reduce um, carbon emissions and the like. Um, but as you said, you know, we, we get into opportunities as well. But first of all, I mean, do you think that 10% is a fair enough comment? Okay, we're looking at 80 years now. But does that sound feasible? Uh, not only does it sound feasible, to me it sounds conservative. Yeah. I mean, what does it look like when every year, every two years, we're getting what are called 500-year events? Yeah. Right. So if anything, um, I think it's conservative. Uh, The extent to which um, any administration, any individual or any company puts their head into the ground without recognizing what's going on, um, the extent to which that happens Mm. is is appalling. Going back to the report again, the, the excuses I've heard both since the report and before about why the Trump administration or the Republicans don't want to act. It's, I think one of the senators said, uh, you know, anything that we do to try and combat it will hurt the economy. 
which I kind of read as we have to invest money. But we've just done tax cuts, so we don't want to. But that's just me being you know, controversial, I'm sure. Um, all the way through to you know really silly things like, well, it's too late to do anything now, so why bother? Um, that extends, obviously, that kind of mentality may extend to companies, I assume. So what, what are you seeing? How, how are companies changing? I see a lot more talk and some action. But how do you see it? I actually do see a good deal of action. Any corporation that is well-governed has got to look at the environmental and social imperatives associated with climate change. And I think we're seeing um, the action of corporations um, take over the effectiveness of, um, of the public sector and, um, and, and take over to some degree the leadership of the investment world, the capital markets. That said, I think the capital markets are starting to get loud. And, um, and I would argue that those excuses, um, they are either completely lame or totally obtuse. Mm. Because the reality is um, sometimes we have to use language differently uh, to get something done in a way that's not divisive or politicized. Yeah. And so, yes, we're talking about investing for alternative energy, investing to deal with climate change. The reality is what we're talking about is investing for infrastructure. Yeah. And nobody seems to complain about that, which is great. Well, we have an infrastructure week every week at the White House. It just doesn't really yield anything, it seems. But, I mean, but, I mean that's the point, I suppose. But if I look at what companies are doing, I, I get that a lot of them like to have the boilerplate language up there. They like to talk about, oh, we have a sustainability report. I'm looking at a, a recent uh, bit of research from um, Sustainable Investment Institute and the Investor Research Responsibility Center Institute. Bit of a mouthful. 78% of the uh, S&P 500 has a sustainability report, but only 14 of them have integrated reports, which I think means where they show this is exactly how ESG is affecting us, what we're doing about it, what the risks are, what the opportunities are. So there's still a very long way to go. There is a long way to go, but in terms of that integrated report, that one report that brings together ESG, environmental, social, and governance factors, with um, traditional financial factors, that's where we are going. And ultimately, when we identify and when we see better disclosure around material ESG factors, that's when we get to an integrated report. Right. And that's where really the father of integrated reporting, like Bob Eccles, um, comes in. And so the work of Bob and the work of the SASB, uh, the that's Sustainability a, yeah. Accounting Standards Board, this is, this is progress. And this is what's going to allow for um, really thought-leading corporations um, to show the way, to raise the bar. Um, and so we're seeing really good work. And by the way, now, not only are we seeing corporations lead and some investors lead, but we're seeing states lead. California is leading the way, and they will continue to, and then we will see other states uh, join in that, so New York and Connecticut. Right. Um, so there really is a lot to be optimistic about if we put aside um, you know, administrative ignorance. Hmm. How much a of a role to play does the federal government have in this, considering, like you said, you've got you know, the We're Still In campaign, 100 resilient cities, all, all of, the, I see a lot, I mean, we did a, a very quick research on this a year or so ago, more than that, you know, more than 50% of the GDP of the US was in some way or other through states or cities uh, committed to staying in the Paris um, Climate Accords from 2015 and working towards um, better goals. There is a role for the federal government. How much of an impediment can it be? It can be a, a substantial impediment. But what I would argue is that, you know, the, the federal government, it, it, the intention is for it to be infrastructure, right? And infrastructure can be either, you know, f flexible um, and adaptable, or it can be brittle. 
And, right. you know, the latter is what we have right now. So what I would say is we don't have an optimal infrastructure in place, which slows things down. But I also would argue that economics is more powerful than any single administration or federal piece of, of legislation. And so the economics around addressing climate change are very favorable. We're seeing the costs come down dramatically to alternative energies. Um, so, so the reality is this is going to sort itself out. Hopefully it's going to sort itself out um, before we destroy any more thousands and thousands of species, yeah. uh, including our own. Yeah. Well, that brings us back to the role that investors can play in all of this. And I, I think of yet another research report that came out recently from the US Forum for Sustainable and Responsible Investment. Now, They've got a number in there. I'm sure you've seen it. $12 trillion is now classified by them as sustainable or responsible or whatever you want to call it. Out of $46, 47000000000000 trillion in the U- of professionally managed money in the U.S. So basically 25% of all the money being invested in this country is going into addressing climate risk and other sustainability issues, which at that level, uh, that would tell me that we've solved the problem. I mean, $12 trillion is a good amount of money. Great. Let's, let's go home. <laughs> Uh, $12 trillion is a, um, a lot of money, and I would love to see it move along with many, many, many trillions more. That said, I think we have to always be careful and skeptical about what numbers mean and what is included in them. And so what I think we have with that number is a, um, a generous aggregation of um, any sort of uh, fund or vehicle or manager that has done anything from just screening out tobacco um, to actually analyzing all material ESG factors. I think it's such a broad swath of the markets that I think it it doesn't give us real uh, insight into what's going on um, kind of um, on a, on a serious analytical mm. level, yeah. you know, and, and a serious level of intentionality, yeah. which is what makes for sustainable and impact investing. Well, I think one of the problems I found in looking at this is, is the terminology. So the whole idea of ESG, uh, environmental, social and governance, strikes me as, as a, I think, as it, as it was, it was like a, it was a bucket that uh, a conference, a UN conference 15 or so years ago, they couldn't work out what to do with them, so they lumped them together. And to an extent, like you were saying at the beginning, if you, have, if you are a well-governed company, then your environmental and social um, aspects will be better than others or should be better than others. So far, I get the link there, but it does seem like it's, a, let's just put them there because we have to. And then we, you know, I start looking at, say, well, how well do these strategies outperform if they do indeed at all? And those with good governance perform better than those with environmental, just environmental aspects, which perform better than those with social aspects only, which all seems fine. And I mean, outperforming the overall market. But again, it means that in studies like this one that we're talking about, you can lump them all together. Maybe it's all just about governments and these firms aren't talking about environmental or social. Actually, it is all about governance, because if you are a well-governed company, you are looking at the key environmental and social issues. If you are not looking at the key environmental and social issues, you're not a well-governed company. It is tautological. And so governance really does. It is first among equals. Um, And one of the things I just want to go back to is um, there are people, I think, um, don't use language maybe as carefully as might be optimal. Um, There is no such thing as ESG investing. There is such a thing as ESG analysis. Right. Right. When you do ESG analysis purposefully and consciously, 
then you can do any kind of investing you want. If you want to call it sustainable investing or impact investing or double bottom line, triple bottom line, values-based, if you just call it investing, that's actually my favorite. Yeah. But ESG is simply a lens. It's an enhanced analytical tool um, to be conscious about your investing. And then if we're talking about uh, specifically that term impact investing, I actually like that term because it implies intentionality, it implies um, measurability, and then if you're really lucky, you could bring additionality into that discussion, meaning that but for this investment, um, something good would have not happened. Right. So the, the, um, the language of um, impact investing, I like it. Yeah. But the bottom line is this is just good investing. Yeah. Okay, I mean, I, I like the idea of, of, of a lot of these terms basically just being catalysts, real catalysts. So they, they come in to try and shape, change people's minds and then disappear when people get the joke. But, I mean, the impact idea is an interesting one because, to me, impact, to, at least in the past, used to be maybe non-profits or others investing without necessarily considering or, or expecting a financial return. But from what you're talking about, it's, it's become more of the mainstream way of describing how, if you are investing as a profitable enterprise, you can think about what your investment will do for the planet, for example. Yeah. I mean, I would argue that all investing has impact, whether or not we know what it is, whether or not it's good or bad. Um, the reality is it all has yeah. impact. And yes, impact investing came from kind of the philanthropic world, a world where um, either concessionary returns or no returns whatsoever is fine. But the issue is that we do need to move trillions of dollars towards social impact. Yeah. And to move trillions, you need the mainstream of the capital markets to get moving. Yeah. And we need to get moving more quickly than we are. Going back to that discussion on climate change, um, when we talk about moving trillions, well, to give context, last year I understand that about $450-$500 billion was spent on alternative energies, invested there. Right. If we were to get anywhere near what the Paris Agreement would have called for, um, we're talking about a trillion five or so. So we're not moving anywhere near as much money right. as we need to, and we're not going to unless we see the capital markets get going. Now, for example, that 500 trillion, sorry, 500 billion, mm -hmm. or that 1.5 trillion number you mentioned, how much of that, uh, certainly of that 500 billion number, would you say is folded into that 12 trillion SIF number we talked about earlier? Because that SIF number I see is, it's, it's, it's money that already exists that just happens to be putting a screen on or something, as opposed to here's money that needs to go to um, renewable energy or needs to go into, you know, it's called levels another bucket, um, you know, um, wastewater and, and water uh, improvements. Um, and that, or other infra infrastructure or other needs needed around the globe. All these numbers I see are talking about equity and bond investments that are already out there where people are just basically moving, almost like moving, not decks on the deck on the, on the Titanic, but well, they're, they're basically it, moving chess pieces. It's an accounting, and accounting is enormously important, but, but driving um, future revenues, incremental investment, um, that's what we really need to do. I mean, arguably, when we think about Paris, the big commitments that were made by most of the companies there those were actually um, commitments that would have been made anyway right. or had already been committed to. So we need more. We need incremental um, additional um, spending. And again, this is where the idea of a more conscious 
form of investing um, can happen. And, the, you know, the issue with um, the SIF numbers, again, it's, it's an accounting. Um, and remember, that report is called trends. And so that, that's fine. You don't need to be precise when we're talking about trends. And the idea of um, false precision in numbers, that, that does trouble me. Yeah. But that trends report, I don't think, is, is pretending. No, it's a almost 40% increase over two or four years. I forget that since the last report. If it's a trend we're looking at, that is a good thing to see at least. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, we've got um, one of the successors to Paris starting very soon um, in Poland, COP24, where, as I understand it, there is meant to be more of a push to firm up numbers, firm up commitments. How well do you think that's going to go? Honestly, I have no idea. I know that um, sometimes when past cops were perceived as failures, they've actually been successes, uh, and vice versa. So I honestly have no idea. But one thing I would argue is that the U.S.'s position, if anything, is a mobilizing force for those that can get something right. done. So, you know, what California is going to want to do, um, what other leading, what Germany is going to want to do, what France is going to want to do, I think, if anything, they'll be more mobilized. With, the, with regard to the emerging markets, you know, it's very, very difficult. They see us having had the growth that we did um, with the energy infrastructure that we did for all these years. And so I know how difficult that's going to be. That said, um, it's not too late. It's not too late if we have the force of will right. to bring everyone together. And, um, and again, technology, economics, trumps politics, in my view. Excuse the phrase. I think we can excuse that. That's okay. Uh -huh. um, all right, back, back to um, investing. There was an issue earlier this year, and back to the Trump administration. Um, in fact, I was, I was sitting at a, a, a conference in Boston on climate change organized by one of the, the, the lobby groups, Ceres, nonprofit lobby groups, when the Department of Labor came out with its note about fiduciary duty and ESG investing, and everyone was going, what does this mean? What does this mean? This is terrible. I mean, how can they tell us not to include ESG? And I read the language, and I thought, you can drive a truck through that thing. Um, it seems mean-spirited and, and really ill-thought-through. I mean, ill-thought-through for the administration to achieve its goal, because you could easily manipulate this mm -hmm. and, ignore, frankly, ignore it. But I know fiduciary duty of investors is one of your bugbears, if I may put it that way. So why don't you just explain what, how you see fiduciary duty in context of impact investing, ESG, or whatever we want to call it. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that drivel that came out during series is, is just that. It's rhetorical uh, idiocy. Um, the reality is when it comes to good research, good analysis, and making investment decisions using all the available information, all right, integrating environmental social governance factors um, is, is an absolute duty. It's an absolute fiduciary duty to not integrate those factors. That's when you're breaking the fiduciary duty. Well, one of the ways I read that also was it, it's almost giving lazy managers a way out. They can just say, I don't need to worry about it because the government tells me to ignore it. Um, do you think that's been happening? Not only do I think that's been happening, and, and by the way, for years we've had lazy managers that are closet indexers. Mm. Um, and now, you know, given the, the popularity of passive investing, um, it becomes more of a reason to, that lazy managers can, um, 
cannot do the analysis they ought to do. I would argue that a manager, um, anyone who's sitting on an investment committee, um, a trustee, a chief investment officer, I would argue that any of these professionals that are not systematically analyzing the material ESG factors in an investment process are breaking a fiduciary duty and they should either be fired or be in jail. You cannot make a thoughtful investment decision without looking at ESG factors, period. The one issue there, I suppose, for many of them is, and people talk about this in so many different contexts, the short-term nature of investing, which sometimes I think is just an excuse, again, for laziness. But you, know, you can see it in the short-term outlook that a lot of analysts have, although they've tried to improve that a bit. You, know, you have three-month versus 12-month outlooks. And a lot of companies will say, if only we didn't have to worry about the quarterly earnings, then we could focus on long-term strategy, which also, I think, is a little bit of an excuse. Um, but there is something to the whole short-termism, I think, of the capital markets or capitalism as it exists at the moment, isn't mm -hmm. there? The, the, where taking on an, taking an, a proper integrated ESG approach is going to be difficult if your boss doesn't get it. I think that's absolutely right. And what we're talking about are incentive systems um, that have, you know, bent us towards short-termism. So if we're talking about the incentives in the world of um, brokerage and wealth management, if we're talking about incentives uh, for asset managers, certainly if we're talking about incentives at, um, at investment banks, and then further, if we talk about um, listing agencies, the exchanges, mm -hmm. if we talk about the accountants, there are so many um, uh, pieces of the capital markets where the incentive systems have been really messed up. Mm. And that's really, you know, when we think ba back to the financial crisis, it was incentive systems, there's loads of blame to go around. And the same now. But the one thing, or arguably the two things, that can help enormously in terms of corporate sustainability, or what I call corporate excellence, two things are in deficit. One is transparency, and two, is collaboration. And so if we have more of both of those, you start to understand what matters, right. all right, who matters, and how value is created. Um, and so I think, you know, capitalism has gone off the rails to some degree, and it very often is about incentive yeah. structures. Now, on the transparency side, in very general terms, we've got investors, some big investors are already coming, coming at this relatively hard, so uh, Japanese pension funds. Um, Norga's bank investment management especially has been saying you know, we've got uh, what, a trillion dollars of assets under management, 9,000 companies have been invested in and we're pushing them to do more and more on climate ex uh, disclosures and as, as I think that the, the, the CEO said earlier this year at a conference, um, the one area we have very little if no visibility is on banks' uh, loan books, so mm -hmm. we're pushing for that, which fits into some of the rules we're seeing coming out of the G20 and the TCFD and others. Um, do you take heart from such big managers being out there, do you think that's pushing the debate along and pushing not so much debate, but action along even further? I do, actually. And Norges has been leading the way for quite some time. Um, and, and so I think that's very admirable. Uh, the Japanese have had some work to do on governance for, you know, a number of decades. So what I would say is that I do take a lot of a lot of comfort in the fact that some of the biggest institutions are uh, are, are coming forward. Norge is a, a fantastic example. Um, the Japanese beginning to get governance uh, to a greater degree. Fantastic. It's overdue.
So with regard to asset managers, um, aside from organizations like Norge's doing um, such honorable work, um, I would argue there's a lot of firms uh, in the U.S., asset managers, very large ones, that are sometimes more quiet about their, uh, their corporate engagements, um, right. about their active ownership strategies. But we know it's being done. And one of the things that we do at Cornerstone is we are figuring out which managers are really doing the kind of uh, ESG integration that we need and the kind of active mm-hmm. ownership that we need. So yeah. there's a lot of, um, there is a lot of progress. Um, there is also, to some degree, a lot of um, greenwashing. And so we really have to know how to separate, um, you know, the investors that take this to heart and use this analytical uh, lens and those that don't. So you think you're, you're saying there are investors out there who we're just ticking boxes. I mean, is that how I mean, greenwashing to to my mind is you know basically when you you claim you're doing something that that is green or sustainable, but you're basically lying. But you're taking this a bit further, I think, or or broadening that so it's not quite so nefarious. So it could just be you're greenwashing because you're ticking boxes and there's no ill intent necessarily, but it's just it's not really what should be going on. There's only ill intent if it is it is purposeful um, obfuscation of what you really are doing. Right. So I think there's a lot of um, managers that think they are doing sustainable investing, um, but they're not. Mm. In fact, uh, you know, if we use the example of gender lens investing, you know, for a manager to count the number of women on boards of directors uh, or women, you know, in the leadership teams, and that's it. Um, to call that gender lens investing, not only is is it wrong, but it actually potentially damages the economic outcome that we're trying to um, to drive, you know, because such big issues are being overlooked, big governance mm. issues, you know, like policies and programs and the nature of the product, the nature of uh, the supply chain and workforce uh, management. So, um, so you have to be really careful. I, I get that on greenwashing, but I mean, it's not a simple thing to do. Okay, you can say we can check to see if you're just looking at screens and we can probably tell from a couple of questions whether an investor is just ticking boxes. But you know, whether a whether a corporate is greenwashing or not, how how do you and an investor, how do you get what what, what should we be looking for? Well I would argue that the the single element the single most important thing we can look for for a corporation um, to know if this is real um, or if it's corporate greenwash crap, um, we look for consistency. So when it comes to what the board is saying, what the executive committee is doing, what's going on throughout the staff, when you look at accountability, when you look at the work, for instance, that a, f- a company might be doing in lobbying uh, mm-hmm. versus the work that they're right. doing in in real life, when you look at their um, uh, accountability uh, efforts, when you look at the auditability of what they're doing, when you look at all those factors, and obviously if I didn't say it, I I, I should stress it, (laughs) incentive structures, right, Mm long-term incentive structures, when you look at all those things, if there is consistency, that's a fantastic um, uh, data point to, to think about. If there's a lot of inconsistency, that doesn't mean you, you hate the company. It just means that you ask some questions. Right. And that way, hopefully, you can accelerate progress. When you're talking about gen lens investing there, that particular example, that's just taking a snapshot in time out of context of everything. It could be the fact that there are 50 women, 50% women on the board and a, a good number of women on the executive committee, or in 
vague positions about could just be a mere fluke. It could be that they're, what if they're all doing HR or some other job that, and they've been passed over for other things? And it's not just, the, yes, it's, it, it's a snapshot. So that's one thing, because when it comes to ESG data, you want to see a trajectory, yep. right? But not only is that just a, a snapshot, it is missing really critical aspects of what makes a, a successful company and what makes a successful gender lens investment. Yeah. You know, a company can be have an all-male board of director, all-male investment team, um, excuse me, executive team, but then be working on a product that has wildly positive implications for women around the world. Yeah. Great, you know. So it's, it's just a matter of ESG factors are, it, it's a starting point for inquiry. It's a starting point for more analysis. To use ESG factors in and of themselves, a single factor can give you really lousy signals. Right. Let's look ahead then to to, to next year. Now, one one thing I've been looking at this year is, and last year as well, is how active investors have got in the field of sustainability. And it's not a great record. You're seeing more and more numbers of, say, um, proxy fights over information from Exxon or Chevron or others. There have been a few pushes, like I think Tyson Foods had a, a good proxy about improving water management, and there was a, you know, a, a great example of bad governance. The, the, the Tyson is controlled by, uh, by um, super voting stock by the family. Uh, they won the vote as a result, but then they said, you know what, we should probably do this anyway, so they gave it to their investors. Great. I don't see a lot more happening there. What I was thinking was surely if investors want to get more active with already listed companies, they should be saying, okay, you need to get, A, not just get more information, but prove you're doing it properly, link executive pay to it, get board members involved. And if you don't, we're going to start hitting you at your, at your annual meetings. Do you see that changing to, to be more proactive? I think there's a lot of that that goes on already. Again, some of it, some of the really powerful stuff is behind the scenes. Right. You're not always going to hear, you know, what, what you know, MFS or Wellington or BlackRock, you're not right. always going to hear what they're doing. But hopefully, and, and I believe that they are having um, really engaging discussions um, with, with companies. In fact, you know, even retail investors, high net worth, families, uh, foundations, um, it, they are starting to want a serious voice. We put out a piece of research, we just called it a voice in the boardroom. And how do private investors get their voices heard? And they do. And there are organizations in the impact and sustainability world, as you sow and, and will do work with, with clients. But you really are seeing, um, I think, an improved uh, effort towards real stewardship, you know. And ultimately, boards of directors are supposed to be, you know, stewards of yeah. uh, corporate legacy. Um, and I think we are starting to see that a bit more. That's thanks to social media. That's thanks to big data. Um, that's thanks to um, technology. It's thanks to a generational shift. It's thanks to having more information uh, through disclosures. Um, so there's a, there are fundamental, you know, shifting dynamics that are making this happen. Um, you know, hopefully it'll be in our lifetime. Yeah. And. Possibly against that, you, you referenced this earlier, the rise of index investing. Mm. Now, I think it's fair to say that in some companies, the, the big three in, uh, index investors account for anything up to 20% of a stock. Now, each of them has been saying, you know, I think State Street's been very big on, on water, very big on um, number of women on boards. Vanguard and BlackRock have said their own things. Obviously, BlackRock's CEO, Larry Fink, came out with his, his social letter at the beginning of the year to companies. 
how do you see that playing out? I, I do see these guys wanting to be more proactive in what they want companies to do, but also they do have to just be invested in the indices. Mm-hmm. So how does that play out? Well, it's interesting, and it's and it's um, to some degree it's it's alarming, because if the indices are what's driving the market, then effectively there is no market, and um, and so it's it's kind of alarming. And I understand that people want uh, really cost efficient solutions to do what they want to do, um, but I still believe that there is a huge opportunity for real. Um, advisory work in the investment world. And especially because, you know, investing, the complexity of investing, um, you know, can't be captured um, by indexes. And so if we think, when I talk about complexity, the nexus issues that are out there, um, healthcare and climate, climate and women, automation and uh, income inequality, blockchain and society, um, uh, safety and national security and climate. Those nexus issues are so incredibly complex that if you really believe that you want to have purpose and consciousness associated with your investments, you can't just be that passive about it. Erica, I think that's a perfect note to end it on, that we should be more active in what we try to do and and try and investigate more, which, I mean, I think that goes back to the first conversation we ever had about how, you know, the thing is to just keep asking questions. That's it. Questions are the starting point for wisdom and investing. Erica Karp, founder and chief executive of Cornerstone Capital. Thanks for coming on The Exchange. Thank you. That's our show for this week. Please subscribe to The Exchange on iTunes and join us again soon for another edition. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.